recording has started and uh, therefore uh, I'm going to start. I'm uh, Gene Epstein and I do call myself an Austrian. Uh, I wrote a column about the economy, a weekly column about the economy for Barron's Financial Weekly for uh, 25 years and uh, I left that job in, uh, in early uh, 2018. And uh, since then, I've been running the Soho Forum, a debate society uh, uh, that meets monthly in downtown Manhattan. And I recently did a, a debate myself that was moderated by somebody else, a debate with a New York Times editorial writer on economics about um, recent events or events over the last several decades in the U.S. economy. And if you go to the Soho Forum, Dot org, uh, you can learn about the event that's coming up, uh, which is going to be a debate about lockdowns featuring the great Jay Bhattacharya, uh, who's going to take one side of the debate regarding lockdowns involving uh, COVID, of course. Uh, and uh, you can also get access to all the debates we've published. Uh, and you can get them either on video or on, uh, on, on, on podcast. And that's been 71 debates to date. Uh, several involving me. Uh, I, I call myself an Austrian really because uh, while uh, I started as a, as a socialist uh, and I taught mainstream economics, um, I read Murray Rothbard's Man, Economy and State in my late 20s, I'm now 78, and tore through all the Austrian books um, uh, after that, uh, Hayek, uh, Mises, uh, uh, Kersner, a whole slew of people, including, of course, Thomas Sowell, uh, who I do regard it as an Austrian. And that has deeply shaped me. Although uh, when I wrote my column for parents, not everybody could tell that it was an Austrian because I had to write about the numbers and about the stock market. And in the 800 to 900 word column, it didn't always come through that I was Austrian. However, uh, if anybody read my column regularly, could readily discern that. So I've been asked to answer questions about uh, uh, in my capacity as an Austrian. And looking over these, I'm going to be begin with several that relate to money and the Federal Reserve. And I think the first one I'm going to begin with is from Tyler Grossman. And he uh, he's talking about Rothbard's book, The Mysteries of Banking. And uh, I guess it was called The Mystery of Banking. And it's a book I haven't read in a while. Uh, and so I'm not going to vividly remember what uh, Tyler says about Rothbard's particular issues. But Tyler is concerned about the idea that we have three things with money that, that we do. We spend it, we invest it, and we hold it in cash balances. And of course, it's simple enough to understand that we spend it. Uh, that's something we do all the time. And uh, but. Uh, Tyler wants to know about the difference between holding it in two different ways, at least as he puts it, holding it. Um, why do we hold cash balances? Well, we hold cash balances because uh, we can't uh, predict with a certainty how we will spend our money from day to day or from week to week. We have some idea, obviously, about uh, obligations that we've taken on, about uh, about regular payments for rent or regular payments for mortgages but for but even from day to day and certainly from week to week we don't quite know and so we need money 
readily at hand. I myself actually carry a fair amount of cash in New York City because I like to pay uh, taxi drivers and waiters and other people cash so that they can evade their taxes. Uh, and uh, so I carry cash balances for that reason because of uncertainty, because um, the uh, because the, the the future, or and certainly even the near term future, is unpredictable about how we will need our money. Now, it obviously doesn't mean we have to hold a whole lot of cash balances, but it does mean that we have to hold some. We all feel the necessity to hold some, and so Tyler is asking, well, don't we also hold money in savings, and therefore, what is the difference between the two, and how can we tell the difference between the two? Well, um, I would begin by by suggesting that that uh, that when uh, that Tyler, in fact, correctly uses the word invest rather than save, uh, because uh, invest really is a better word for what we save. Uh, it's an investment, uh, and uh, and the reason I like the word investment is to dip, is that it helps me differentiate between the money the quote-unquote money that we are saving and the money that we are holding in cash balances. Now, clearly, most of us, most of us, when we think in terms of saving, we think in terms of putting our money in something else. It's no longer money. It's stocks. It's bonds. It's real estate. It's the houses that we might or might own might or not might or might not own it's we might we might put money in gold that's a speculation but that's a form but but a speculation is a form of investment we might put it in silver we might put it in bitcoin and therefore it's no longer money and uh, because it is it's it's an investment instrument or or indeed it's it's a it's an asset like uh, or speculative asset as in the case of bitcoin or gold so therefore what I would first suggest to Tyler is that, for the most part, uh, the cash balances that we hold, and if we are rational human beings, uh, uh, we will uh, we, we, we will find that, for the most part, there is a clear difference between what we are saving uh, and, indeed, what we are investing, because all savings should involve investment, and what we are holding in cash balances. And that that gets into one of my hobby horses, which is that the Bitcoin community often calls money or calls Bitcoin a store of value. And indeed, it is arguably a store of value, but only for slightly nutty types. types. Money is arguably a store of value for, you know, the proverbial pension, the French peasant who puts his money in, in a mattress or Silas Marner of the famous novel who put all his gold in the basement. Well, actually, of course, gold was a speculation at that point. So I guess uh, in that sense, Silas Marner was not just a crazy miser, although gold was money at that point. So therefore, he might have been better off if he had taken that gold and invested it in some kind of asset. So. Uh, what I'm trying to get at is that it, it's fairly clear if you look at anybody's bank account or and, and portfolio that that there is a reasonable divide between what we hold as cash balances and what we hold as savings and investment. Now, the only confusion is that uh, is that at the uh, where they, there's a point where they they begin to blend into each other. Uh, there is, I think, a, a reasonable concept called near money. 
you know, mere money is, is is a kind of is an instrument that can be quickly converted into money, and that does that actually does include treasury bills. That's the that's a, the instruments of the of the treasury, U.S. Treasury. It does include um, savings accounts. But for example, it will not include bank certificates of deposit, at least not for the vast majority of us, because if you uh, if you cash in a bank certificate of deposit uh, before it matures, you have to pay a penalty and nobody wants to pay that penalty. Uh, and so um, uh, my only point is that uh, is that if Tyler wants to know about the distinction between cash balances and saving, then I would agree that uh, that at, at the margin, so to speak, uh, when you ask somebody, well, is this saving or is this a cash balance, then it, he might say, well, that savings account that I'm holding, it's partially saving and it's partially a cash balance because I know that I can quickly convert it into money within a day or so uh, if, uh, if I need it as money. Uh, and so uh, for that reason, uh, there is a certain blend, a certain melding, but as I say, for the most part, uh, in, a, in a rational society, a rational economy of, of rational people, uh, it will not pay to keep uh, your money in, in uh, uh, keep your money in, in in the pure form of saving as as a as a store of value. Because uh, if you think about it, first of all, with inflation, of course, the money is going to be worth less over time. So you want to invest it in something that will. Be ahead of inflation, or at least will partially pay you for the inflation. But now take the other uh, 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 direction. Let's say that your money is appreciating over time. Let's say it's price deflation, as would be the case if we were under a gold standard or under a Bitcoin standard. Uh, the money appreciates over time. So uh, the, the Bitcoin uh, uh, advocates say, well, then Bitcoin is a store of value or gold is a store of value. For that reason, because it appreciates over time, it's worth more this year. Can buy more next year than it can buy this year. However, uh, the obvious point that they're missing is that if you buy, say, a, a bond that matures in one year that pays you, say, one and a half percent interest, uh, then uh, you can buy the bond with Bitcoin from in, in a Bitcoin uh, economy, Bitcoin-based money economy. Uh, buy the bond with Bitcoin, and a year from now, you'll get one and a half percent more Bitcoin so that you will not only take advantage of the fact a year from now that the Bitcoin can buy more, you'll, you'll, you will have turbocharged that buy more uh, advantage by the fact that the bond uh, paid one and a half percent. So therefore, uh, uh, e e even in, in an economy where money is appreciating, rational people will tend to put their money into real assets in an advanced economy. And, and, and the, the healthy part of it, by the way, is that the, the, the credit markets and the stock market will recognize that they do have to offer an, an inducement for people to put their money into, uh, into these instruments and some extra inducement because it, it would be profitable to keep it in a mattress or, or keep it in a safety deposit box. But uh, if they offer a sufficient inducement, I would argue as little as a one and a half percent per year of the return, then clearly people will put it in those savings and investment instruments. And so Tyler, I hope I've answered your question, but I basically said is that you should think in terms of investment 
uh, and uh, ask where do most of us invest our money in a, in a, in a reasonably functioning economy, that's, that's saving. And uh, where do most of us sort of hold money balances and, and then we can, it wouldn't be just cash, it wouldn't be just in your checking account, it, could, it would also be in a money market account near money. It would also be in a savings account uh, near money that could be very quickly converted to money. Now, um, I guess I'd have to concede that some people think of, of, of a liquid, if you're holding a stock, you, it's a liquid stock market and you can convert it to money right away, but most of us don't perceive it that way. You know, of course, that gets back to, of course, to the subjectivity of these things. Well, um, Tyler, I hope I've answered your question. And now I'm gonna get to another question having to do with money and the Federal Reserve. And I guess I've marked uh, this one from Stephen L. Stephen L. asked, how does the Federal Reserve influence the bond market? Someone said not to buy bonds, but I'm not sure why. Well, um, I wouldn't necessarily say you shouldn't buy bonds. I'll get to that part in a moment. But um, the, the, uh, the Federal Reserve uh, influences the bond market very simply by buying and selling bonds. But by, by using created money, I, I, I could say printed money, but really it's money they create because it's not printed anymore, really. Except, of course, if it's, uh, if it's uh, you know, uh, greenbacks in your wallet, uh, it creates that money and it uses that money to buy bonds or to sell bonds. And of course, uh, and those are bonds in the secondary market, bonds that have already been issued. Usually, historically, it's been buying treasury bonds, bills, and notes. You know, bond bills are short-term, notes are the intermediate term, and bonds, treasury bonds are longer term. Usually it's been those. Uh, over the past several years, they've also bought, bought mortgages, which are also bonds. And of course, uh, if you, or they sold them, but if, and, and they've accumulated a considerable amount of these bonds over the, over the last several years, and that's been called quantitative uh, quantitative easing. And uh, why is it called that? Because because if you buy these things, buy these bond instruments, you bid up the price. And since all of these bonds have a fixed coupon that they pay, uh, then the, the, the pricier the bond, the lower the effective interest rate. And so, and that's what they've been wanting to do. They've, they've been trying to keep interest rates all along this so-called yield curve, short-term, intermediate-term, and long-term interest rates, have been trying to keep them low uh, by buying bonds. And now they've, they've had a correction and they're beginning to, uh, to allow uh, these bonds that they've been holding to mature. So the holdings of bonds are, are beginning to deplete, although very slowly, and, uh, and they're no longer actively buying bonds. So uh, clearly, if you buy and sell bonds, and if the bonds have a fixed coupon, then you are, in, in a direct sense, arithmetically affecting the effective interest rate that these bonds pay. Uh, and again, if you're selling bonds and their price declines, and therefore a, a, a cheaper bond with a fixed coupon is going to have pay, have a higher interest rate payout, and a, a more expensive bond with a higher price but a fixed coupon will have a lower interest rate payout. Now, um, why uh, why have you been told not to buy bonds? Well, uh, of course, it's a little treacherous, treacherous to deal with something the Federal Reserve directly influences. Uh, however, 
uh, I would not say that you should never buy bonds. Uh, there were, there were they, they, historically, uh, over uh, over time, the the bond market has been. If you if you owned a portfolio of bonds, would it beat price inflation? Well, yes, it would. And uh, and it's and it's generally a little bit more stable, a little less volatile than the stock market. The stock market beats price inflation by even more. Uh, but um, I wouldn't say that you should never buy bonds. Um, although, of course, if you are in the bond market, then you do have to be aware of what the Federal Reserve does. So again, that's how it influences the bond market directly because bonds are what buys and sells and of course it could it could buy and sell wheat it could buy and sell lots of other things but there's a particular reason why it likes to buy bonds for of course bonds are, are easy are, are easy to purchase easy to acquire but more importantly and I guess this segues into a question from Jay Landers more importantly the whole tradition of the Federal Reserve not buying mortgages, they started to buy mortgages more recently in order to ease the mortgage market. Uh, but uh, uh, but uh, it, it, it also has preferred to buy uh, U.S. Treasuries. And I'll get to, of course, the, the obvious hand-in-glove uh, uh, reason why it wants to buy the, 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 uh, the debt obligations of the U.S. Treasury. But, but I want to add one other point uh, to my answer to Stephen L's uh, question, which is that uh, I didn't, is that the story isn't complete when you talk about the, the Treasury, for example, the Treasury, the Federal Reserve, rather, the Federal Reserve influencing the interest rate on bonds, because uh, there is a rebound effect potentially from people, from a group of traders who used to be called the bond vigilantes. Uh, and uh, what, 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 what does that involve? Well, uh, say that the, that, the, that the Federal Reserve is trying to lower the 10-year interest rate by buying 10-year uh, bonds, bidding up the price and effectively lowering, lowering the effective interest rate on those bonds. But if it puts out a lot of money, that could cause price inflation. If it puts out a lot of money, it would not only cause price inflation, it could cause expectations of greater price inflation down the road. And, and, and a, a lot of, since a lot of bonds are in the hands of private, of private traders and, uh, and private investors, um, they could be fearful of that price inflation and they could start to sell those bonds and therefore offset the efforts of the Federal Reserve to, uh, to, to lower uh, the, the effective interest rate on those bonds. And that has happened in the past. And, the, and I think it's a good term, uh, bond vigilantes, you know, private sector citizens who are countermanding the commands of the Federal Reserve. And so it's a complicated uh, potential interaction. And, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and it's always important to recognize that that in any, uh, in any rational free market, if there is going to be price inflation, then, uh, then, then anybody who, who lends money uh, is going to want to get a return that, that's, that, that's greater than the rate of price inflation, because if you're not getting uh, a rate of return that's greater than the rate of price inflation, then, then you're taking a loss on, on, a, on an investment that at least involves some risk. And, uh, and so that is also another aspect of this. And, uh, and for that reason, then the bond market is also always subject to different kinds of turbulence. 
and most recently, of course, the uh, the, the long term uh, the, the ten year interest rates has been rising uh, because of uh, greater expectations about price inflation sparked by the recent price inflation. Well, um, so uh, that's a lot of talk, I guess, about uh, about the bond market and influencing it. Uh, Jay Landers asked a question about price inflation and saving, and uh, I guess I want to uh, disagree with him a little bit. Under a fiat system, he writes, that promotes inflation, I like to always call it price inflation, not just inflation, because inflation, strictly speaking, really means an expansion of the money supply. An expansion of the money supply doesn't always mean prices are going to go up, uh, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but price inflation always means that prices are going to go up. So uh, that promotes price inflation. The fiat system does indeed promote price inflation. Um, and... Uh, and he says there's less incentive to save uh, when uh, there's price inflation. Well, um, I I would say that there is something to that saying a statement that there's less incentive to save. But 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 there's there's no question that the uh, that the private sector has been has had long experience with with the price inflation uh, policies of the Federal Reserve. After all. These, uh, this phenomenon has been going on for more than 100 years. The Federal Reserve was, uh, was launched in uh, 1913. And so um, if, you, if you look at uh, any 15th, even 15 year periods uh, of the stock market, for example, and assume reinvested dividends, or certainly 20 year periods or 25 year periods, the stock market always beats price inflation. Uh, if you look at the bond market over the long term, it beats price inflation. And since most of us um, really don't feel that we can depend on the on the government to uh, to bail us out if we're having trouble, many of us keep a rainy day fund. Amazingly enough, many of us do save. And if you really look at the conventionally measured uh, data on saving, there is a fair amount of saving in the U.S. economy. A lot of saving. Uh, and uh, by the way, I would include uh, the, uh, the, the the purchase of a home and the and, and the money that's put into a home, um, the, equi the, the equity that's built in a, on a home as you pay off your mortgage. That also includes that that a home is an asset. It, it's an asset that that can that can deteriorate physically, but of course you're putting money in to maintain it, maintaining it. And you are accumulating uh, equity in the home as you pay off the mortgage. And so that is saving as well. So we get an awful lot of saving in the economy. Now, when there was an inflation shock, then the assets don't, don't keep up with it. And there was an inflation shock in the 70s. There has been a recent inflation shock over the past year and a half. And so those assets are not kept up with inflation. But, but by and large, over the long term, they do. And by and large, we all find a necessity to save. And therefore, uh, the, if price inflation reduces the incentive to save, it's not severe. I, 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 I'm, I'm talking about, of course, the kind of price inflation we've had in the U.S., which is at worst it's been you know, 10 or 11 percent. Uh, if you're talking about hyperinflation, which I would define as inflation that can run as high as 100 percent, and of course that's not uncommon in, in, uh, historically. It, was, it happened, of course, in 
Germany in the 1920s under the Weimar Republic. It's not uncommon in other countries. Uh, that's a different matter altogether. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and I think that that will induce all kinds of crazy behavior, which uh, not crazy behavior, behavior that would normally be crazy, but it's in response to a crazy situation. However, given the kind of price inflation we've had so far historically in, in the US, I would say there is a lot of saving and a lot of incentive to save. And so I want to turn Jay's question around a little bit when he talks about the, the, the problems that result from a greater reliance on fiat money. He talks about economic problems. Uh, and but I'll talk about uh, I'll broaden the issue of what, what those problems might be. Um, now, of course, the, the real economic problem about the, the reliance on fiat money, the most serious economic problem is uh, is, is price inflation, of course, uh, for average individuals, because uh, it causes a lot of uh, a, a lot of turbulence, a, a lot of disruption in their lives. Uh, and and. Uh, if the Federal Reserve, for example, right now doesn't try to stop that price inflation, it could eventually feed on itself and become 100% hyperinflation. That could have happened in the 1970s, by the way, when we had price inflation running 10, 12% per year, uh, but for the fact that the Federal Reserve under the leadership of Paul Volcker broke the back of the inflation. It wasn't so much that the 10 to 12% inflation was awful that it caused human misery. It was really that it was obviously not good, uh, but it was mostly, it was really that that if that it was beginning to feed on itself and it could have in, in, in a matter of several years uh, risen toward 40% and 50% price inflation. And that's why it had to be stopped. And that's why this price inflation has to be stopped. But to talk about, uh, to broaden Jay's question about economic problems, the real problem, which of course is not well understood by the monetarists, um, by the conventional monetarists like Milton Friedman, is that th this fiat money is a credit, it consists of a credit expansion that causes malinvestment in the economy and causes boom and bust. And that's where it really hurts. And, and then on top of that, Getting back to what I said earlier about why the Federal Reserve has historically and by tradition bought the debt of the U.S. Treasury is that the whole purpose, the central purpose of the Federal Reserve is to monetize the U.S. Uh, uh, debt and to monetize it, meaning uh, that instead of the U.S. debt being sold legitimately in the marketplace, it's, it's sold to the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve prints money uh, in order to take it on. And that's an escape valve for the U.S. government. There are three ways for the U.S. government to raise money. It can, it can tax people, it can legitimately borrow, or, or the, the, the greatest thing of all, it can print money. And that's, that's why government sees the people's money. You know, the kings wanted to fight their wars. They could have financed those wars through taxing and borrowing, but how much better, how much more easier uh, would, it, would it be then to, to, to seize the people's money, they seized gold, and, and to and to take that gold and then to debase it, to own that gold, and then to declare all kinds of things, uh, to, to abuse the privilege of owning that gold, and then to print money. And that, that's something that should offend not just Austrians and not just libertarians, it should, should offend anybody. If you want to make a case for government to tax and borrow, at least that happens in the open. When government finances its operations through the printing of money, that's much more nefarious. It, it offers government far more power 
over our lives than I think even non-Austrians, even non-libertarians would want to grant that government. Uh, well, I see that I'm, uh, I'm getting a little bit verbose. I'm looking at the time and um, there's only a certain amount of time left. So maybe um, I should get on to another question and, uh, and not, uh, let's say, not dwell too much on the Federal Reserve. But then I guess there's one more question. Zachary would ask, how does central banking, the Fed in particular, allow banks to increase credit expansion? Well, um, uh, I'll tell you, basically, basically the story there is, Zach, of course, it's, it's, it's simple enough, I guess, to say that, that, they, that when the, the Federal Reserve prints money, the money goes into the hands of the banks. And, 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 and when, those, when the, the banks then get that money, they're, they're able, to, they, their role is to, is to release it. Their role is to lend it out. Uh, and uh, and so that's how they participate in the credit expansion. Although, as a matter of fact, historically, uh, the causality has often gone the other way. Uh, by that, by which I mean, uh, banks, for the most part, over the last decades, a number of decades, have recognized that they if they open up a line of credit for for uh, for a, a good you know, bank dependent. Uh, business. That's a line of credit that consists of a demand deposit. And they can do that at will. And and then the Federal Reserve then looks at all of the commitments that are made and and then expands the, the basic money supply, uh, uh, the underlying money supply, in order to make it possible for that bank to have sufficient reserves to lend that money out. If you understand me correctly, then the banks were often have historically often been the cause of, of the credit expansion, and then the Federal Reserve reacts. The only way the Federal Reserve is able to bring that in is by raising the interest rates, and which it can do. But uh, anyway, as I imagine you can see, uh, the banks are ready participants in this whole process, and I would often call them the banksters because they are clearly co-conspirators in this process as well. At least the established banks are that are members of the Federal Reserve. Uh, well, I, I, I sound like uh, as an Austrian, the only thing I'm interested in is is um, is uh, money and uh, banking uh, and uh, and the Federal Reserve. Uh, but uh, let's see. I, I, I'm, I'll deal with a few quick ones. Who is or your favorite non-economist in the Liberty Movement and why? Well, uh, the standout, I guess, is Scott Horton. Uh, so, uh, Scott would certainly uh, admit that he's not an economist. However, I, I think of Scott as among among those who are commentators, prominent commentators and writers in the liberty movement. I think of Scott as perhaps our only authentic genius. And uh, and and it's not just that Scott has this incredible recall and no and has such a range of understanding about his expertise, which I guess I haven't yet mentioned, which is of course his U.S. foreign policy. It's not just that. Sometimes Scott loses me, by the way, because he's got, he can range over so many theaters of war. I can't quite keep track. But uh, but uh, but I will emphasize one thing about Scott Horton that. I love his books. Uh, he wrote a book called Fool's Errand, and he wrote a book called Enough Already, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and and, uh, and the other one was Enough Already, uh, Time to End our, our Imperialist Wars. I forget what the subtitle was. Um, I've, I've read much of, the, much of what's in those books, but I listened, by the way, a couple of times in, for both of them, uh, uh, both of those books, to Scott reading them on Audible. And if you really want to get an understanding of the subtleties of Scott's mind with respect to foreign policy, 
and, and there's a range of interests. And, and, and these are books you can follow easily because it clarifies everything. It puts it all in context. Uh, then, then you will uh, get a, gain a real understanding of his authentic genius. I've, I've, been, I've, been, I've been a student of U.S. foreign policy since uh, the Vietnam War, which of course was raging in the 1960s. And, uh, and uh, the, when they wanted to draft me in that war. So, uh, and, uh, and I've always often been fascinated by the Cold War, which I, I, was raised, uh, I was raised in the 1950s on the Cold War. And so US foreign policy has always engaged me. And as Walter Block has said, if you really care about what I prefer to call the zero aggression principle rather than non-aggression principle, Walter Block has said, look, where, where do we, does the U.S. really violate the, the non-aggression or zero-aggression principle in its foreign policy? And that's the reason why I regard Scott Horton as one of the really go-to people, although I will also uh, mention in terms of foreign policy, uh, where do I see it? Oh, yeah, um, uh, ben, oh, ben, ben Abelow, Benjamin Abelow has written a really great book about uh, the Ukraine disaster. Uh, that's Benjamin Abelow, A-B-E-L-O-W, and he wouldn't pretend to be an economist. And also Dennis Pratt, um, who's a great, uh, uh, he helps run Porkfest, or he really is the brains of Porkfest up in New Hampshire. And he's done a lot of provocative work on libertarian philosophy. And last but not least, even though I insult him, I'll mention Dave Smith. Now, Dave, uh, Dave obviously has no training as an economist, and most of the time, when he really wants to talk about economics, he has somebody on his show. That I would, I, I was occasionally on his show correcting him about some of the things he said about economics, although he has basically a good grasp of it. But, uh, but I, I, I do want to mention uh, Dave Smith because I really think that I've known him for a number of years now, and, and he has really grown as a thinker. He's very nuanced, and his range of commentary on part of the problem uh, with uh, Robbie, uh, Bernst, Robbie Bernstein uh, is, uh, is often something which my fingers do the walking, and I listen to it. And most of the time, of course, Davis speaks as a non-economist uh, and, uh, and comments, I think, very incisively about libertarian strategy and libertarian issues. Uh, well, uh, let's see, there are more questions, and uh, yeah, well, this is a biggie. Well, here's an easy one. Jonathan Gress-Wright, Jonathan Gress-Wright, Gress-Wright, asks, this, a lot of people are bullish about the current economy. That startled me, uh, including many libertarians. See the recent interview with Kevin O'Leary on the Reason podcast. I listened to the Reason podcast. I missed that. Uh, Kevin O'Leary is, of course, this investor, he's been on Shark Tank, he's got a certain amount of curmudgeonly charm. Are they right or are there reasons to anticipate another crash soon? Well, gosh, you know, I'm Kevin O'Leary is a reasonably bright guy. I don't think he has any training in Austrian economics. I, I, I tend to disdain uh, most of these guys, the, the billionaire businessmen who comment on economics and will comment on just about any issue. Bill Gates is usually a, a, a total loss. And uh, so, so are most of the others. Uh, and uh, but uh, I, I mean, I, I'd love to think that Kevin O'Leary is correct. However, um, it's fairly clear that we are headed for a recession. Uh, we're already seeing in, uh, in the indicators uh, that uh, the, the the yield curve, uh, the yield curve uh, has inverted. Uh, by that I mean. Uh, that uh, historically, whenever, to choose one example, to whenever the three-month interest rate is higher than the 10-year interest rate, 
then that's a pretty reliable signal that a recession is is about to happen. And by the way, it's not to, uh, completely uh, simple to explain why that's the case, although it makes a certain rough sense, and I'm not going to take the time to, to elaborate on it, but empirically, if the three-month is, is higher than the 10-year, then it's almost always, it's not, it, there are very few false alarms. Uh, the three-month is now higher than the 10-year, and historically, you find that uh, recession is going to happen. We also find with that we've got all of the earmarks of conventional recession on the, on the way. The, the Federal Reserve has, has, is raising the interest rates. We have a huge amount of debt outstanding that's beginning to get hurt by it. Um, we, we, the, mo most of my Austrian colleagues, by the way, are predicting that this is going to be the mother of all crashes. Uh, they, I, I'm, the, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of an outlier in that I, I cannot rule that out. That, that this recession will be even more severe than the recession of 08, 09. Uh, but uh, I, I think there's so many wild cards and, and that, that our understanding of why recessions are severe or not severe is, is really um, partial. It's not complete. And therefore, I wouldn't rule out the possibility this will be a relatively mild recession. But hard for me to believe, hard for me to imagine that we are not headed for recession. We see it in other numbers. Basically, what the, 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 the third quarter GDP number in real terms was, was barely higher than the fourth quarter GDP number of last year. Um, it, 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 it fell a little bit in the first and second quarter, rose a little bit in the third quarter, and now it's barely higher than the fourth quarter. So basically, we're already in a situation as, as measured by real GDP uh, that we are, uh, we are in a situation of stagnation. And so uh, uh, we're already getting just signals from the broad macro measures that uh, that we're in a slowdown, and uh, and then uh, as I say, we've got an inverted yield curve, uh, the three month higher than the ten year, which is also signaling it. And then on top of that, we've got uh, we've got a huge sort of argument, which, which I think is mostly valid for a typical sort of Austrian downturn. Malinvestment has occurred. We don't know precisely where, although, by the way, it has occurred in, in housing, it has occurred in certain places, it has occurred in the stock market, uh, uh, for sure. We're looking at bubble situations in that there as well, so therefore the stage is set. But uh, Jonathan, I'm going to definitely look up that Kevin O'Leary interview. I might not stick with it for more than six minutes uh, if he says something uh, slightly uh, daft. Uh, but uh, I'll listen to it and hope he's right. I, I, I personally, do, I don't welcome recession. I don't welcome bad times. I, 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 don't, I don't think that bad times are necessary for libertarian uh, radical reforms to be achieved. Uh, bad times and good times, libertarian radical reforms can be achieved. And of course, I take the good times over the bad uh, any day, as anybody would. And so uh, I, I hope there won't be a, a recession. But I, uh, I, I give Kevin Leary the good odds that there will be at least some kind of recession. Uh, and I guess that segues into the question of Michael M., which is, what is wrong with government statistics? Would there be statistics in the free market? Is there an example of government statistics you've found insightful? Uh, well, uh, that's a broad question, and I'm only going to be able to answer it in broad brush strokes. You, you already see that I'm citing government statistics, or I'm citing some official statistics, the interest rates, uh, 
uh, or, uh, or statistics that, uh, well, they could be put out by the private sector, but uh, but Federal Reserve is actually, which is a government agency, of course, puts those numbers out. I've already been quoting gross domestic product. And uh, I, I think that uh, there, there are a lot of problems with uh, the official statistics. About you know, 80, 90% of the official statistics are put out by government. Uh, some are put out by the private sector. Uh, the uh, and, and are and are valuable. Uh, in particular, measure the the uh, Institute for Supply Management puts out some valuable numbers on services, on the services economy, and on the manufacturing economy. Most of them come from the government. And uh, and I I you might say I'm biased. Uh, my job really, for the most part, writing for Barrons over 25 years was to interpret the numbers. And the numbers on the economy were mostly put out by the government. Uh, I have a whole. I wrote a book called The Econo Spinning, published in 2006, I guess. Uh, and uh, the subtitle was How to Read Between the Lines When the Media Manipulate the Numbers. And so I think that uh, that the numbers have value. Uh, uh, and but, but however, of course, I think that they're easily manipulated. I think that to some to some extent the numbers are not good. Uh, uh, to some extent, uh, they, they they can easily be misinterpreted. Uh, but uh, I do think that it's useful to follow the numbers. And I'm happy, for example, that colleague of mine, uh, Bob Murphy, Robert Murphy, who, who has a uh, podcast and uh, who used to appear with Tom Woods on something called Contra Krugman, that he's, uh, he's become a, man, a pretty good master of the numbers as well. Because I think that it's, uh, that, that we do, that it, it, it's very, it, it's not difficult to, to, to understand a lot about what's going on in the economy by looking at the official numbers. Uh, I didn't put that well. I do think that there was some value to looking at the official numbers uh, and that uh, I've got a lot to teach people about which numbers are good and which numbers are bad. Uh, I have a particular issue with the Bureau of Labor Statistics because they publish numbers that, uh, that, that, are, that are especially bad, some numbers that are especially bad. And I'm able, however, to point out that the sister organization called the Bureau of Economic Analysis, they, they are part of the Commerce Department and they are in charge of the national income and product accounts. The Bureau of Economic Analysis has better numbers that compete with the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And so I can use them as a corrective. However, what frustrates me is that when I put, when I put out a certain uh, charts and certain conclusions that based upon the BEA numbers, uh, the Bureau of Economic Analysis numbers, I get people refuting me by citing Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers on the same issue. And, and it's difficult to me to, to speak within the authority to these people and tell them the Bureau of Labor Statistics is putting out lousy numbers. And, uh, and uh, that, that's, that's been a frustration for me. I, I, I even have the imagine, imagine that if I visited the economists there, I could get them to change their minds because this is not as though it's not as though I'm being that radical. I'm, I'm simply telling them, why don't you listen to the BEA for a change? Because the BEA, Bureau of Economic Analysis, has better numbers. And and there was uh, there have even been uh, articles written by Bureau of Labor Statistics economists, Bureau of Labor Statistics economists that more or less confess to some of the problems BLS numbers have. Now, I'm not going to have time to elaborate on what, what I'm talking about. Um, however, on, on, my, on my Twitter feed, which is uh, the, I recommend you follow, which is at Gene Soho Forum, Twitter handle, I guess you call it, at Gene 
Soho Forum, uh, you can find uh, some discussion of this. And come to think of it, if you put my name, Gene Epstein, into the Mises Institute website, you can find a recent talk I delivered, this was a past uh, late July, down at Mises University on, a, on this on an important issue involving the numbers and uh, involving what I mentioned about the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So again, uh, you can hear me elaborate on that and where I actually do release the numbers. Uh, I do feature these numbers that come from the Bureau of Economic Analysis and that do, I think, have some value. Uh, the, the other particular uh, question that Michael asks is, would there be statistics in the free market? And I think there would be curiosity about statistics in the free market. You know, when I, when I said the Mises Institute is, look, I understand how offended we can be about uh, about uh, statistics. Looks like I have a minute left. It's all right if you go a little over. Okay, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you, Liam. Uh, where does the term statistics come from? The state, the state, the word, the root of the word statistics is the state. And uh, so that's pretty ugly. And of course, uh, these statistics were compiled in order to get, allow the U.S. government to better manage, quote unquote, and usually, of course, mismanage the U.S. economy. And so that's pretty ugly. On the other hand, and the statistics were by and large not compiled by Austrians. Uh, uh, and so they have some flaws. Uh, but, uh, but, but compiled by pretty smart people, compiled by people who did, you know, I would say that about all mainstream economists, that they're all Austrian to some extent. My big hobby horse is that the term Austrian economics is sort of like a redundancy, that we, and meaning that all economics is essentially Austrian, having to do with, uh, with, 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 with thinking about individuals and markets, thinking rationally about how we operate in markets. And so uh, I think many of those numbers were compiled with that in mind. Uh, and, uh, and so I think there would be curiosity about numbers, data, statistics, even without government's role in uh, in in, uh, in compiling those numbers, and I and uh, I would imagine that it could be potentially lucrative for even a profit-making organization to compile numbers. Interestingly, I, I've actually uh, thought that that uh, that uh, it would be uh, there would be a market for price for price indexes that um, <clears throat> in a society where. In particular, in a society where an economy where Bitcoin uh, is money and where prices are falling, uh, I think it would be useful to put out price indexes uh, that, uh, that 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 give people a sense on how uh, much the standard of living is improving because again, improving because because they <coughs> they have a certain amount of Bitcoin and say you know the average cost of living has gone down by ten percent and so that would be. Uh, come from a price index, and I can imagine that uh, that through computers and through linkups with the ways in which uh, prices are, are transacted via computer, it might not be that expensive to gain to gather access to price the price of uh, the raw data on prices, and that uh, and that it would, might be worthwhile for this profit-making organization to actually pay. A fee to the sources to provide the data, and uh, uh, to to, uh, to to or if you're polling people, pay them to provide the information, or polling businesses, pay them to uh, to provide the information. I think there would be curiosity about these things, and I think that uh, is certainly in a flourishing free market economy where we're all getting richer. I think there would be a fascination with uh, with with data, although of course it would take 
a very different, uh, emphasize very different things. I'll tell you a funny thing about, funny scandal about the US government and how rational it is with respect to data. Where is Where does the US government spend most, federal government, spend most of its money on gathering data? In the agricultural sector. Uh, the USDA, US Department of Agriculture, spends more money on gathering data than the Commerce Department, which, which is in charge of the Census Bureau and in charge of the um, of the Bureau of Economic Analysis that gathers data, and then the Bureau and then the Department of Labor gathers numbers. They gather numbers on on, on labor, Department of Labor does on uh, on wages, on productivity, on prices, on GDP, and all of those things that are supposed to be all about managing the economy. Um, the money that's spent there is far less than the money that's spent just on agricultural prices, and that has to do with the influence of the farm lobby. It's not really that rational. As interesting as as the farm sector is. It shouldn't necessarily get get more money than all the other agencies put together. I'm just saying it's just a, just a funny story about this our supposedly rational government and how it how it allocates money for for data. Well, look, I'm frustrated that I'm I'm not going to have time to answer all your questions. It looks like I've gone over time and possibly worn out my welcome. Uh, but uh, once I get started, I, I enjoy myself. I hope you've enjoyed it. And what am I supposed to say? Yeah, I'm, I'm supposed to thank you. And, uh, and uh, again, say I'm Gene Epstein, uh, and uh, please uh, go to my Twitter handle, at uh, Gene Soho Forum. And uh, I, uh, I guess I look forward to um, doing this again. And thank you, Liam McCone. Thank you to Mises Caucus and to a guy I have enormous respect for. Come to think of it, let me conclude by saying my favorite non-economist, because he's a person of sterling character. He works very hard and he's achieved a lot. And he's a quiet influence. And his name is Michael Heiss, H-E-I-S-E, H-E-I-S-E, Michael Heiss. Uh, thank you for hosting this with the Mises Caucus.